0: What happens when a guy from the city accidentally contacts a guy from the country? It's not what you think. They strike up a conversation and same difference is created. JD and Corey talk the whole gamut of life as they each see it through the prism of race. One is a six foot four black man and one is a five foot four white man. Tune in and find out which is which. Agree or disagree, they will make you think, strike emotional chords, and more. Stick around. You might just learn something. Welcome to Same Difference with your hosts, J.D. and Corey. We're sharing our stories and how our stories impacted our approach to life. We take our perspectives into having dialogue about real-life topics. Welcome back to Same Difference, Season 1, Episode 3. I am one of your co-hosts, Corey May, and this is my tag team partner, J.D. Mass. J.D., the good doctor, talk to us.
1: Well, how are you, Corey?
0: Brother, I am happy. We've gotten two of these episodes under our belt. This is our third, and I am ecstatic to be here.
1: Yes, I am too. And, and thankful to VPR uh, for this wonderful launch they've given us. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, the, the episode we just recorded with them, um, uh, where we've, we've been on there now to really make the launch official. Um, so I just really appreciate the love that they've shown.
0: Shout out to Kiana and DJ FMI. Love, mad love to both of you. We couldn't do this without you. And we are certainly having a whole lot of fun doing it with y'all.
1: Very much so. And, you know, to that extent, uh, when they announced us two weeks ago, um, they, you know, had a beautiful uh, talk about our chemistry. And Kiana also mentioned having heard one of your storytelling moments and a story that I thought maybe we could kick off this episode with, with you and kind of enlightening us some more on what G.I. Joe meant to you as a child.
0: Oh man, thanks man. Thank you for giving me the floor. No, that's my dad. He is just telling me that the seven dollars and fifty cents that I want is too much. Now he's talking about something he calls economics. I don't know what that is, and I don't really care. All I want is a GI Joe, and it's not just any GI Joe, it's a GI Joe that looks like me. Dad's telling me that that seven dollars and fifty cents can go toward groceries. And it can go toward gas and all these other important things. But as a seven-year-old, what I want is what I want. Now, there are G.I. Joes in Iowa City, but none of them that look like me. They all look like my classmates. Blonde hair, blue eyed, red hair, green eyes, dark hair, dark eyes. But there are none that look like me. It's the summertime, and thankfully, my auntie Eileen is visiting us. Auntie Eileen is my dad's older sister, and she, like my dad, is also a teacher. She says, Corey, if you want that G.I. Joe, I will buy it for you. All you have to do is come with me to Gary, Indiana. Now, as soon as she says this, my decision is already made, my mind is made up, and I fly upstairs, top speed, skid on one foot around the corner, and take off down the hallway. I grab the largest suitcase that I can find, and I start throwing everything that I own into it. T-shirts, underwear, socks, a couple of books, Even though it's August, I grab one winter boot because you never know what's going to happen in the Midwestern winter or summer, as the case may be. My sister's too big to fit in here, but that's okay. I grab everything I've got. I put it in there. I jump on the suitcase and I lock it shut. It's heavier than I am, and I start dragging it toward the upstairs door. That door takes us down the stairs, and there's only one way for me to get down there. I hop on that that suitcase like a cowboy, and I ride down those steps. ka-donk, ka cadunk, 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 cadunk. And when I finally reach the bottom, Mom and Dad look at me like I've lost my mind. But my Auntie Eileen, she knows what I want, and she helps me carry that suitcase out. She opens up the trunk of her brown Cadillac and slips the the suitcase in there. Mom and dad still don't believe that I'm going to go with her to Gary, Indiana. Auntie Eileen opens up the door, straps me in, and we wave goodbye. She calls me her little prince and I love that. And she tells me it's four hours to Gary, Indiana. We stop somewhere along the, right, uh, along the road and go to McDonald's. Now I have my first McDonald's cheeseburger and fries and I have a vanilla shake and then I fall asleep. When I wake up, we're in Gary, Indiana. She helps me pull my suitcase out of the trunk of her car and carry it into the house. We watch a little bit of television. She gets me a snack and then it's time for me to get ready for bed. I wash my face and I brush my teeth and I say my prayers because tomorrow is the big day. I wake up at 6.15. Bright and early, fix myself a bowl of cereal. Auntie Eileen is still sleeping. By 6.30, I'm sitting on the couch waiting. Auntie Eileen doesn't wake up until nine o'clock and she doesn't say anything until she's had her coffee at 9.15. By 9.45, we're ready to go. She packs me into her Cadillac and we drive through Gary, Indiana. She takes me to the first place. Now, let me tell you a a little something about my Auntie Eileen. She's been a teacher for longer than I've been alive and she has two voices she has my auntie voice which I love when she calls me little prince she uses that voice but she also has her teacher voice and I don't like to hear that much at all we make it to the first toy store and it's it's pretty impressive and we find the aisle where the GI Joes are, and I go through all of them, and there's none that look like me. And I look at Auntie Eileen and she says, "Don't worry, Corey. We'll find another one. You promise? I promise." And as you know, grown-ups never break their promises. Never. So we drive to the second store, and this one's even bigger. And I look on that aisle and there's a whole bunch of toys and there's a whole bunch of G.I. Joe's. And I go through all of them. There's no G.I. Joe's that look like me. They all look like my classmates, blonde haired, blue eyed, red haired, green eyes, dark hair, dark dark eyes, and there's none that look like me. I'm seven and we've been to two stores and I can't find a GI Joe that looks like me. But Auntie Eileen promised that she'd find me one. So we climb back into her Cadillac and we drive to the third store. And this place is huge. I could stay here forever. There are bicycles. They're all bigger than what I can ride. There are swimming pools. I don't know how to swim. There's toys and things that I could get from my older sister, but I got to focus. I'm here for one thing, that G.I. Joe that looks like me. And I walk down this aisle. It is huge. And there's a big giraffe everywhere in front on on all the aisles. And I walk down that aisle where the G.I. Joes are. And I go through every last one of them and none of them look like me. And I look up at my auntie and my eyes are big and they're getting wet and my bottom lip is starting to quiver. And Auntie Eileen, being an elementary school teacher, spots the meltdown about to happen. And I bury my head in her hip and she puts her arm around me and she says, Corey, calm down, be patient. Which makes me start to sob because I'm not getting this G.I. Joe and a grown up has broken her promise. I can't handle this. Just then, a young woman who works there comes around the corner. And. Auntie Eileen says, hey, excuse me. Do you have a G.I. Joe that looks like my nephew? And she says, no, I'm sorry. Everything is out there. And Auntie Eileen stands up straight. And then she uses the teacher voice and says, why don't you check in the back? And I don't know whether that woman was one of Auntie Eileen's former students, but she does exactly as she told. she's told. And she marches straight back into the back. And I know I'm not gonna get this G.I. Joe. And I'm starting to cry. It might've been five minutes, it could've been 30 seconds. But the woman comes back from the back of the store and I can't see anything through my tears. And she walks up to us and she's got one hand behind her back and she sticks at it out and says, here, I found a G.I. Joe that looks like you. And it does. Dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin. And I'm happier than I've ever been because my auntie has kept her promise and I have the G.I. Joe that I want. I wait until Auntie Eileen's paid for it to open it up. And then we get out to Auntie's car. She opens the door and straps me in and I strap G.I. Joe in right next to me and we drive and we make it back to her house. And G.I. Joe and I play in every room and in every corner we kill some dust bunnies, maybe a dust rhino or something. And then it's time for dinner and I wash my face and Joe's with me and it's time to eat dinner and I eat dinner and Joe's sitting next to me. We watch television and Joe is right next to me. Time for me to wash my face and brush my teeth and get ready for bed. Joe is right there with me. I get down on my knees and I say my prayers and I tuck Joe in. And as I turn out the lights, this is the best day ever because tonight at last I can dream.
1: Beautiful story. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thank you for sharing that with us uh, free of charge. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love that
0: story because it's all about the value of representation. Right. And how powerful it is for us to see images that look like us, and how important it is for people to recognize how important it is for us to be represented those the folks that ran the toy stores in Iowa City either didn't know or didn't care about that value of representation and maybe or maybe yeah. it's just the data that said hey they don't sell here right but for one kid that one there was at least one kid that wanted that gi joe and i had to go 4 hours and a couple hundred
1: miles to find it And And I got to tell you, that means the world to me, man. I mean, the interesting thing is we could dive into so many different parts of this, right? Like maybe they were out of GI Joes in Gary, Indiana, because it's only one black GI Joe. And Gary, Indiana has a large black population. So they bought up all the black GI Joes. That's a possibility. Right? There's all these different things that still that representation uh, doesn't really get Equal, sort of, justice, in this sense. Well, so as I've gotten
0: older and gotten a little bit more mature, not much, but in um, Brown v. Board of Education, the there was a doll test. Dr. Kenneth right. Mark created the doll test that right. showed the psychological significance of segregation on African American right. children, and they put. A black doll and a white doll next to, in front of black children. And the black children were choosing the dolls that didn't look like themselves, the white dolls, over the ones that looked like themselves. Right. That's a very powerful message that we are internalizing as children. That we
1: begin to hate ourselves. Have you seen the Paul Mooney uh, skit about that? Which one? Where he's talked about, they just asked them the wrong questions. They should have been asking them, which one of these steals? The white one. And which one of these (laughs) lies? The white one. (laughs) And he had this whole little thing. He was like, they just was asking the wrong questions.
0: Nice. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the, the
0: thing is, though, so let's pull this out just for a minute, because I'm sure you can talk to this as as well as as I can. Think about how few roles we saw people of color, black folks on television. And what's that message that we are sharing over and over again or reinforcing? Black and white television was literally, like, white television. (laughs) Right. And how difficult that was. Mayberry RFD, I don't recall on the Andy Griffith show seeing too many people of color. And I got to say, we were still alive there, and we were still alive then. We, (laughs) Ah!
1: Right. And... (laughs) It goes even deeper, um, there was a Jordan Flaherty wrote this book um, and, and it's, it's in my book. I wrote about this uh, um, where he spoke about how Hollywood purposely took even true stories. Uh, mm-hmm. Danny Glover tried to make a movie. I think he ended up making it, but it didn't really get much distribution, but it was a great movie. Um from or it, it but it was about uh a black man that kind of became a hero of his town and what he went through. And they told him we'll do the movie if you could make the character, the lead character white, the hero white. Right. And it's based on a true story. He wasn't white. Like what, what are we doing? So you know, there's, it's not just that it didn't happen and it just was unconsciously not happening. It was consciously not happening. And so I want to just go deeper into this, right? When when I saw, when Jordan Flaherty came and talked to us at White People for Black Lives in LA, and he spoke about, you know, all the things that Hollywood was doing to create this representation and misrepresentation. Um, problem, uh, and especially around heroism, wh- the movie Hidden Figures had just come out. Right. And uh, Shavella and I, my son's mom and I, went to go see the movie. And I don't know if you've seen it. <clears throat> I had all kind of problems with how much it represented the NASA, you know, armed forces, pure American and made all these black folks just kind of seem to want to be American and want right. to be included in being American and not just represented as we needed them. Right. It wasn't just that representation. It was also this twist of how they wanted to be, they were so proud to be American. Okay. So that part made me nauseous, but that's not what this is about. So we're in the theater and there's a point where Taraji P. Henson's character, who is the main mathematician being relied upon, has to run to the bathroom so far away during the rain. And Kevin Costner, who's this leader of this NASA project, is looking for her and is pissed off she's not there. And when she comes back, he's pissed and he's asking her, where have you been? Why haven't you been here? And she goes into a rant that's so passionate and so poignant. And just, you know, moving. Yes. And the next thing that happens is he goes and he tears down the sign of colored only bathrooms and white only bathrooms.
0: Yes. I remember and the that. The crowd
1: thing. cheered. Right. And I went, they got their white hero. They did not cheer for this passionate, poignant speech. Right. They cheered for the white man making the change.
0: Right. When it took
1: her and his need for her to for that to even really happen. So then later on in the movie, there was a point where she did some math to let them know how to land the plane when everybody else was trying to keep her quiet and she was like, nope, you're wrong and whatnot. And, And when she did that, Shavella and I cheered and some white couple behind us went, good point. Got it. Point well taken, and I thought, okay, good. At least this is just so subconsciously planted in us Mm -hmm. that we don't even see how it exists because it's just so natural. It's the fish in water. Oh, right. Yeah. And, And yet, if you, it's not. It doesn't mean that white folks are bad when they get it wrong. It just means that we haven't been taught how to see it right, to even recognize it so much of the time. And so I just was happy when all we did was clap by that, and the couple behind us went, yep, got it. So uh, I felt that. I went to a movie, uh,
0: was it, I believe it was Race, about Jesse Owens. Yeah. And they centered... It's about Jesse Owens going to Ohio State and qualifying to go to the 36 Olympics, where he is the reason why the myth of Aryan superiority crumbles. Right. And this movie is centered on Jason Sudeikis' character, who is his coach at at the Ohio State University. And it right. annoyed me. Uh, My movie companion was saying to me, well, that's all you got out of it? I said, this is supposed to be about Jesse Owens, and we should be seeing this through Jesse's eyes, going to The Ohio State University and going, feeling all of this segregation. We should be feeling this instead of having this centered on this guy with uh, this this guy who's coaching externally and making owen's better that kind of bothered me now don't get me wrong and he could be the coach he can be the
1: he shouldn't the, the film shouldn't be centered on him but and now look at how we treat black talent right so music is Put out by these black artists, and they don't get to eat a fair share for the product that they've created. They are the product, right? And so the movie subliminally shows him, and I I love the movie. I love the acting in it. They subliminally shows him as being this coach, and And the other white guy going and talking to Germany about, you know, changing their ways and all of these different things. And they had to stick up for Jesse. And I'm sure that that partially has to happen. Yes. Yes. Keep coming. But it was like he was the object. Right. And they were it was in their world that this was operating. Right. But he was just the talent. And yes, he was the talent that broke these barriers down, but he was just the talent. And the rest of them had to stand up for them and stand up to this and do this and do that. And you don't get, like you said, you miss the real feeling of what he had to experience. You miss the G.I. Joe story you just presented. We don't get to hear how he was represented in it. We get to hear how they took care of him. Right. And while I think that is a, an important subtext,
0: it right. shouldn't be outshining his experience. And right. and that's uh, m- that's so powerful and we can't sugarcoat these narratives because too no. often we're making them palatable. We can jump back even further to Mississippi Burning. Which was uh, uh an 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, Gene Hackman, yeah, Gene yeah. Hackman wasn't it? Willem Dafoe in there as well,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And they they sugarcoated the yeah, the, the the investigation of the murders of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney there and made it seem as though the FBI was cooperative in trying to solve that problem. And it wasn't anything of the sort. There was nothing of the sort that uh, J. Edgar Hoover at that time hated the civil rights movement and was dragging his feet in terms of investigating. So in real time, uh, Lyndon Johnson, as uh, commander in chief, brought in naval investigators uh, yeah, naval uh, uh midshipmen or wh- whatever the appropriate term is. Correct me. Uh, not to investigate to try to find them, and uh, some one hundred days after they uh, disappear, they're found in a uh, in an earthen dam, buried. Hmm. And so, if we are, if we only. Take the this easy story. route and watch the movies.
1: We're right. not getting the full picture. No. And we get to feel good about ourselves that someone that looked like us, so speaking on representation, looked like us, looks like the hero, right? So we don't get to see, we get to see this individualistic. There are some white people that are bad. There are some white people that are good. And that is true. But there is a culture that we don't get to really see because it doesn't get painted. We get to this representation of such white heroism in throughout all of these movies. Right. And that's fine where there is that because, you know, there are anti-racist white folks, right? There's my Jane Elliott, who we'll spend a whole episode talking about at some point. Indeed. But there are people that do great work that are white. And that is true. And that is something that, you know, our melanated level of, you know, skin color doesn't really determine those things. At the same time, there is a culture that developed this whiteness that also has to be uh has to be broken down and appreciated, and there's other sides to all of these things that are happening that don't get the representation. Yes yeah. so <laughs> there this is representation
0: is a is a huge umbrella and there's right. the rain's falling on it, and yep. there's so many areas under that umbrella that representation has to be. Addressed, right. So we're talking about Hollywood. We're talking about the, the media representations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's important, and you we're starting to see some of that that needle moving. But there is an equal and opposite force that's
1: trying to shut that down. Of course. So. I was speaking. Uh, I just flew out here to St. Louis um, to help my mother, and on oh, my second flight, where, where are you? Where are you repping
0: again in St. Louis? U City. Oh, I, I I had forgotten since the last episode.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking of representation, I'm always representing U City. Um, but uh, on the flight. Um, and on the flight out here, I flew through Austin and, and on the second flight, I sat next to a woman and her child and we t- drummed up a conversation. And this woman is in early childhood education. Um, they, her and her, her husband own a, a piece of a um, a daycare in a preschool in, um, in Austin and they just bought some land for farming in a Southern Missouri rural part, And I was hesitant, we started a conversation and I was kind of hesitant to let her know how I truly felt about things, but eventually it came out and she was very open to excited about race for what, we talked about all these different things. But one of the things we talked about is, you know, how we're raising our children. And at one moment, she spoke about how her daughter was upset, about Ariel being this Black uh, child, right? Right. And she said she was so embarrassed. Oh, my God, what happened? What happened? What happened? And how could, you know, she was like, did, what did I do wrong kind of thing? And she said when she asked her daughter what was, why, she said, because I have red hair. And Ariel in the first one had red hair there's not very many red-haired people, like you You took one of us. And she was like, wow, that was eye-opening. And she's, you know, one, you can kind of breathe as a parent, okay, I wasn't doing this all the way, this way is, is how she put it. But, you know, she got a chance to say, and just think of how few black children get to see their representation too. So she got the chance to explain that and express that to the child that it's not just you, but also acknowledge, yeah, you don't see many red-haired main characters in children's movies. So that representation goes across, and it's just so important for all of them, right? Right. I can tell one other story. A gentleman that I've known for a long time adopted a, a um, Vietnamese baby, he and his wife, and me and my friends uh, would talk about adopted children and how you often see it in, in our neighborhood growing up, it was white parents adopting black and brown children. Right. And the, the challenge is, if you're not teaching them about themselves, the way that they would be taught by their culture and their family and their community, you are missing out on teaching them their true identity and they're going to learn it some other way. So some of the students uh, who were adopted thought being black meant being badass because that's what they're seeing. They're seeing the news, they're seeing the movies of the thugs and all of these things and, and that became their attachment to being black. And others... You know, so anyway, this this guy was raising this child, and they raised him out in Thousand Oaks, California, and raised her. Then moved up to Northern California, and they provided a very good home, and you know, well, you know, good middle class area, and all of these things. And his daughter was in college when Crazy Rich Asians came out, Mm. and said, and excitingly, calls home to tell her parents. I finally feel beautiful.
0: Oh, oh, that's a heartbreaker. That's right? a heartbreaker. Yeah. That is a heartbreaker. I mean, let's let's break that down. And that's again, different. I'm not going to I, I'm not trying to speak for women everywhere, but let's think about those images of what beauty is and and reinforcing that over and over and over again, this is the beautiful standard that you've got to be Northern European, you've got to be skinny, you can't be short or have other features. You can't have a different body type. It's just this uniformity. And then all of a sudden to be in your 20s carrying that self-loathing and then finally seeing you represented on screen and finally feeling like you're beautiful oh Mm, mm, mm. yeah. i would imagine that we can start to see that as well as i look back in my my memories there weren't a lot of black acts that were on mtv Now, again, admittedly, Mm -hmm. I grew up in Iowa, but MTV was a national stream. Certainly. I did not hear a lot of black music on the radios around here. I heard a lot of pop music, but there were no dedicated black radio stations here in Iowa. Um, And then starting to see in the early eighties, uh, MTV showing first Michael Jackson, Billy Jean, Mm. and, and you start to see some early prints. And then all of a sudden there's the, the whole controversy. uh, And maybe you remember this too. It was a conversation where David Bowie, uh, called out mtv and said hey i appreciate that you're doing this music television but you're excluding an entire group of people when you don't have black acts on here and mtv stuttered and fussed and fudged and fidgeted excuse me and said well hey you know what uh rap and and hip hop, it's it's a phase. It's not going to be around, and we don't have that many people on uh, that are interested. Well, they started showing rap videos, and
1: pow. Yo, wow. MTV Raps showed up. Turns out they don't know what they were talking about.
0: Exactly. And here we are celebrating 50 years of rap and hip hop. It hasn't gone away. It right. hasn't gone away. It's not going to go away, and, and we need it. And it's it's mainstream now.
1: It's mainstream. And I don't want to. I don't want to go down this road, but I do at least want to point it out. The people that made all these mistakes still benefited the most financially from them because of the positions of struck the structural power. That existed, right? So we'll we'll dive into that as we go along. But that is <laughs> that is exactly you know what we're going to have to keep coming back to because if this thing is so systems are 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 in depth, right? Nice. It, they're complicated at times, but they're intertwined. That develop in the cultures and all of these things play. So if you don't really see it. You don't really see it, Oh, if that makes sense. Oh, oh, definitely.
0: There was once a time in the early 80s, that was last century to all you youngsters, um, (laughs) when I could spend $30 and buy all the rap cassettes, and I said cassettes uh, in a month. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was it. Now there's so much out there. Some of it good, some of it bad, but that's just like all music. There's qualitative standards here and there. And we can talk Mm -hmm. about not all of it as being good because there's pop music. That's trash. There's country music. That's trash. There's hip hop. That's crap. That's that's trash. There's death metal, speed metal, all kinds of stuff. That's trash. And as well as there's good stuff out there. but here's what we know. We know representation matters and we know that seeing people who look like us having a successful career and a path gives us hope and it may very well give us a plan on how to get to that same place.
1: So, Speaking of representation matters, right? You didn't have a black radio station. We had one called Magic 108, and then it became Magic 105 later. Mm. My friends influenced me, right? I get to hear about, I would have probably not known about Magic 108. You know, my mother listened to soft rock. My dad listened to classical music. and so coming up with them and it being so going back to this level of innocence that children have, for me, that wasn't even a, a thing like, OK, I'm, I'm just listening to the music that I like. And because of that, right, and because there were a few Black television shows, but I liked them and I'm starting to get ingrained in the culture as I'm growing up. I can remember the first time when I said the word cool over the phone and Shondo says, you can't say that. You're (laughs) (laughs) right. Oh. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that stunned me. Like I probably was six years old. That stunned me. Not that he was being malicious, but... I was like, wait a second. What do you mean white black? What is we can't we're there's something different here going on, but he had to be taught about that earlier than I did. My parents mm-hmm. were trying to create the Kumbaya and with all great intentions, especially at that age, I'm 6, like they're trying to preserve my innocence. Right. So that, you know, startled me. And it wasn't until later when I start going to the ohio state university my first freshman year in college we'll get back to that um but when i was first around a bunch of white kids my age Mm. and they didn't watch bet like i did right and they didn't know all these black comedy series and you know stanford and son and good times and all of these like they didn't watch all the stand-up comedians that I watched, and I didn't know half the white stand-up comedians that they watched. I didn't realize that because I did seek out the Black representation. That was what I was a fan of. And being in the city, I actually had more opportunity than possibly you did, one based on just the time and era, two um, based on being in Iowa City, but like it was stunning to me to realize oh y'all don't get to hear DL Hughley talk shit about y'all you <laughs> all don't know what Bernie Mac says about y'all
0: right right like,
1: right okay i'm different well
0: so what 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 we're hearing from you is you grew up and you were What you saw in front of you was, was your life. That was real. It was real. Right. Th- these are my people. These are my, my friends. This is my culture. You were acculturating in and it makes perfect sense that, yes, you're listening to the radio uh, programs and watching the TV shows that your peers do because now you have something to talk about. Common right. the things with which you are relating to your peers. Oh, yeah. so th- that's,
1: it makes perfect sense. Makes Imagine perfect sense. the first song I memorized, rap song I've ever memorized was "Gangster Gangster" by N.W.A.
0: Oh my, oh my.
1: Now I knew better than to say the N-word at that time.
0: I appreciate that. I'm 10
1: but I'm running around my parents' kitchen going, here's a little something about it like me, never should have been let out the penitentiary. Ice Cube would like to say that I'm a mother from around the way, right? And I'm saying, (laughs) drinking eight ball, I'm saying all these things, (laughs) and I have no idea what I'm saying. Right. I'm just, it's the coolest beat, sound, tempo, feel all of that and and I'm just saying all this stuff and they are looking at me like oh unprepared for this one I could see it all (laughs) on their face (laughs) (laughs) so maybe we should just let this pass.
0: (laughs) Interestingly enough while I didn't have uh black radio stations I did have an older brother and he bought quite a bit of vinyl, so I was exposed to some of that. As long as his radio, as long as his records were at home, uh, that was I could listen to them. So I was well familiar with Stevie Wonder because Stevie Wonder had had achieved some crossover fame in For sure in the seventies, and I was familiar with Earth, Wind, and Fire because. If you didn't know who Earth, Wind, and Fire was, you had to be dead. Yeah. But when it started to get into the deeper funk, like Parliament, Funkadelic, Brides of Funkenstein, Bootsy Collins, my brother made me a tape of Bootzilla and I wore that tape out. Right. Uh, oh, my goodness. And there was always an awareness that there was this pop music that I would hear, but there was always a hidden world, like almost the matrix.
1: <laughs> this yeah, hidden yeah.
0: world of music. And I remember the first time I heard Rapper's Delight. And I I identified the bass line from um Good Times. Um yeah from from Chic and I was like oh my goodness I recognized the song and then these guys were rapping, and I remember listening to that or getting a, a copy on a cassette, and I remember listening to Rapper's Delight so many times so that I could memorize that and do the whole 15. And once upon a time, when I was much younger, I could do all 15 minutes of that, but it was right. fun. Now I'm like, oh, I need some man? <laughs> Help me. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that and there was this sudden recognition that for me while i might love some hard rock there was another there was a beat that i could march to Uh, there was a beat of a different drummer that i could march to that i could groove to and that became
1: something that i sought You know, what's uh, interesting is I'm kind of reviewing my parallel with that. I... um, I didn't like rock because of how I was talked about because I spoke like a rapper. Because Mm I... My... um, Vernacular wasn't that great because so there were certain things that were kind of pointed out towards me that um, that made me at some at a certain stage in my life even not like black culture like I love Bon Jovi now Journey more and and all of these uh, you know Aerosmith um, uh, yeah Aerosmith. Harold Smith, um, all of them much more now than I did when they were really popular. Even though, you know, I could sort of subconsciously hear it in the back of my head, I could almost feel myself suppressing, liking those things because of the way white folks often talked about me for being so much ingrained in Black culture, who didn't know me, those.
0: Yes. 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 I I completely understand that feeling of the the alienation because you weren't just like everybody else. Oh, he likes black music.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and I was trying to tell people, and we'll probably get into this another at another time. You can't dance to hard rock. You can't dance easily to hard rock. That's, that's some stuff that hurts (laughs) now. And, and as I got older, you can't romance a woman easily to hard rock. Now I can say I'm listening to some Luther Vandross that sets a mood, but if I've got someone playing a, a hot lick on guitar, I'm, I don't know how I can romance to that. I know how I can romance to some Luther Vandross or Anita Baker, and I'm going old school. Uh, some Alexander O'Neill. I hope you've done your homework. Yes, I have. <laughs> and and I know how to do that. And it's all part of the culture. It's all part of that culture. Going all the way back to the blues men and the blues women who would be singing about the lost love. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love having that as a heritage.
1: Right. I and love that. And don't get me wrong. There were those that still made it through. Hall and Oates, been a fan from day one. Yes, right? sir. Phil Collins is one of my favorite uh, of all time. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, there were some definite, um, uh, what's the guy that Mike George Michael, uh, many that that made it through. Uh, Elton John, I've always enjoyed listening to Elton John. Rod Stewart, yeah. you know, uh, the one hit wonder, uh, Never Gonna Give You Up. That Rick Astley, of, You know, hey, my yeah. favorite. So there were those that made it. But when I talk about that kind of hard rock culture that is the one that I sort of chose to identify with whiteness that was trying to tell me I was wrong for enjoying so much of Black culture. That is how I responded in in that sense.
0: Well, yes. And we can also carry our stereotypes with us into our music and, and say, these folks are one way and those folks are another way and that can go both ways in terms right. of black people toward white people and latin well black people toward other folks and white people toward other folks as well right i i i agree with you there george michael was a bad man i whoo he could he could sang right and and i appreciate that i loved a lot of his work um, to this day, I Hall and Oates absolutely, absolutely. Anytime I, I'm going back through my my YouTube history, there's a whole bunch of Hall and Oates songs that are on there that defined my teenage years and early twenties. Right. Never gonna leave them down, uh, Rick Astley. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you cannot talk about the 80s without that, without that song. You can't, song. and the fact that there are folk and hollow notes. Oh, here's another one. Here's another one from uh, the Doobie Brothers. Oh, yeah. What My- Michael McDonald, Michael yeah. McDonald could sing a McDonald's menu. And I'm still paying attention, bobbing my head. But here's what I have heard out of the the mouths of many of these artists. I have merely picked up the torch. Here are my influences. I couldn't do what I do without having these influences. And therefore, I am thankful. I appreciate that more so than what we... And man we're running out of time. <laughs> we we may have to to hit this for the the next episode. Uh the 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 teaser would be if we dig into the history of musical representation, what will we find? And I think that's a conversation worth having in our next episode.
1: That is. We still got 10 minutes though. <laughs>
0: oh, I don't want to get too deep into this, my friend. Okay. <laughs> that, we, can,
1: cool. we can talk about some other representation time. You oh, know. I,
0: think, I think we've got an, plenty of space for,
1: for more of this. And
0: for our audience, I got to tell you, once you start to see the value of representation, you can't unsee it. See, right. That means so we can extrapolate this out one more degree for any of our, our listeners who are thinking that this is just a black white issue. It can also be a gender issue as well. Mm -hmm. And if we look at hidden figures talking about the women in the room They were black women who were not given a voice. How many times have women in their own set of circumstances not been given a voice? Now I'm not trying to speak again for women. What I am trying to say is for those viewers or listeners who are wondering about whether this is a black or white issue, it's greater than that. The value of representation is that everyone should be represented and that everyone needs to be represented because the diversity of thought, the diversity of experience, and the diversity of the wisdom that comes out of those lessons makes
1: all of our projects that much stronger. And it would add to our level of curiosity, whereas suppressing that adds to our level of ignorance. Yes. <clears throat> and if we remain curious, that's also part of our uh, our innocence, right? Because right? it, it keeps you humble. If you're curious about something, it maintains a level of humility that I don't know it all and I don't need to know it all. I just wanna learn something else from you, right? Absolutely. Like that to me is the essence of why I'm interested in doing this show is because I know what it means to be a a white man inside a black world. And I know what it means to see how black folks are affected by a white world. But I don't know what it means to have grown up away from a black world as much as you have. And that is intriguing to really gain a greater understanding of for me, as well as, you know, tell my stories because you know I, i know that i have a unique journey in my life exactly
0: we both have these unique journeys and the question again i'll i'll ask you some more questions in our next episode this is this has been a good time in terms of expressing and and bringing this representation umbrella to light Because, again, once it's been seen, it can't be unseen unless you are consciously, deliberately, and intentionally saying, I don't want to see it. Right. So the word for this week, kids, is representation.
1: Representation. And we're not talking about legal representation.
0: Oh, no. Different different episode further down the road. Different time. All right. Well, fellow listeners and folks who are interested in Same Difference, I am Corey May. And, and I am my J.D. partner. Yes. We are your hosts on this journey together for Same Difference. This is our third episode. We're bringing it to a close. And soon you will be hankering for our fourth episode where we talk more about how things are the same.
1: And and they're a little different. There you have it. And we can welcome them both. That's it
0: for this week's episode of Same Difference. I'll see you next week, J.D.
1: Thank you, Corey. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to another inspiring episode of Same Difference. We hope this journey through unique connections and diverse perspectives has left you with fresh insights and a broader understanding of the world we share.
0: We're humbled by your support and enthusiasm for the incredible stories and discussions we've shared. And remember, our mission is to foster critical thinking, embrace new perspectives and spark conversations that bring us closer to an equitable world.
1: So if you've enjoyed our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Your feedback means the world to us and it helps us reach even more listeners.
0: And if you have a story to share or a topic you'd like us to explore, don't hesitate to get in touch. We're always looking for new voices and fresh perspectives to feature on Same Difference.
1: Until next time, remember that our shared humanity is our most powerful asset. And by working together, we can bring about positive change.
0: Stay curious, stay compassionate, and keep making a difference. Thank you for being a
1: part of Same Difference. Take care, everyone. See you in the next episode.